Hello, and thank you for listening to Episco Auburn. This is the second episode of this podcast for Episcopal Student Ministries in the Auburn and Opelika area. My name is Gail Goldsmith. I'm a priest at Holy Trinity Episcopal Church, serving both the college ministry and the parish. And this podcast is trying to follow in the tradition of the Apostle Paul's pastoral letters to specific communities. This is a pandemic adaptation. I really miss you. I'll end the episode Paul style with some specific news about the community and thank yous to some folks. But also, if you're curious about what we do and how we gather, then this is for you too. We're reading Acts of the Apostles, what God's people did in uncertain and changing times, how the fragile, freaked out, and fallible people of God prayed, followed the Holy Spirit, and took the gospel to new places. Coming up soon, Satan and stewardship, getting stoned, and Paul's conversion story. So, Acts of the Apostles, where are we in time? This is after Jesus' death and resurrection. After the first Easter, Jesus appears to the disciples, assuring them he rose from the dead and encouraging them to continue in ministry. In Acts 1, we see Jesus ascend into heaven and promise he'll return. In Acts 2, we hear about Pentecost, a festival uh, offering thanksgiving to God for delivering them from slavery and a plague in Egypt and offering to God the first fruits of the harvest. At the beginning of chapter three, we see something really important about how the disciples view their Judaism as not mutually exclusive with being followers of the way. They see a man at the gate. The text says that he has been crippled from birth and that he asks them for alms. When we hear alms, don't hear like a modern sense of charity. Hear a gift commanded by God. Hear this as giving God's money to God's people. Deuteronomy 15 says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy. In space and in liturgy, this man is stuck in one way of relating. He's always outside the temple, never in. And it's significant that Peter and John see him on their way in, sort of signifying that going towards God always involves looking at pain. Someone else's, your own. Verse 4 emphasizes that they that they look at each other, perhaps signifying that in the kingdom of God, we will all be seen fully, clearly, and as God's people. Some commentaries say this man is a daily reminder of the need of Israel for miraculous healing and for yet another moment of divine revealing. But disability theology asks, are we people or are we metaphors? about this biblical story of healing and others. So see him both as symbol and his life as a testament, his specific life and healing as a testament to God. The next few verses are really beautiful. Verse six, but Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. 
The next thing you know, the man is jumping up. He enters the temple with them and all the people see him. They recognize him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms. And they're filled with wonder and amazement about what's happened to him. And then much like in chapter two, Peter makes, um, makes a speech in reaction to this outpouring of the spirit and to help people, um, to help onlookers see this as part of all of God's salvation story, not an isolated incident. Uh, he addresses the people, you Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we had made him walk. Um, when he says, you Israelites, we are um, eavesdropping on an in-house conversation this is a Jew speaking to Jews. This is not um, accusatory, but a, an explanation. So Peter um, links Jesus to all of Israel's history as far back as God's covenant with Abraham, that all of his descendants would be blessed. And Peter is clear that this blessing is not... Um, is not material or political, but it's a blessing, um, both in times of refreshing and the blessing of always a chance at repentance. So turning to chapter four, a very dramatic trial scene before the council. When, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them. And so when you hear this, hear that the conflict is in Jew versus Gentile. It's diaspora Israel and the empire of Rome. Diaspora Israel knows it's a religious minority and is in survival mode. As a people, they've been enslaved and exiled by other empires. The Roman empire is concerned with Pax Romana, social and economic control and orderliness. Jerusalem would have been under a client state system. You can have local governors, just keep orderly, pay your taxes, and don't make trouble. So when you hear captain of the temple, hear that this is a Rome-sanctioned religious official. The Sadducees, commonly listed with the Pharisees, we know a bit less about. Acts 23 and Mark 12 tell us that the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. And by having to specify this about this Jewish movement, it tells us that Judaism does contain belief in the resurrection. We hear this in Isaiah and Daniel and the second blessing of praise in the Amidah, um, a daily prayer in the Jewish temple liturgy, which describes uh, those powers that are only God's this way. Your loving kindness sustains the living. Your great mercies give life to the dead. So the biggest divide here and the one that's on trial is between the illusion of control and orderliness and God's power. The judges are accomplished, well-educated, pragmatic, and well-connected. The judged are Peter and John, former fishermen who followed Jesus far enough to totally upend their lives. And um, this trial mirrors a similar one in the Gospels. Um, so before Jesus is on trial with the Sanhedrin, um, he resurrects Lazarus, he brings his friend back to life. And so um, both Lazarus and the healed man from the gate are pointed to as living and dangerous proof 
the authorities say, okay, we can't punish on behalf of the people. All of them are praising God. So here's, here's the danger. Um, the fear is that theological disagreement will become political uprising. Uh, with, in the first chapter of Acts, the disciples ask, is this when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? And there was always this fear that um, following the followers of Jesus would upset the balance between uh, Jerusalem as a safe client state and its relationship with the Roman Empire. We see this flip in the economy of religious knowledge. Those with traditional authority are fearful, verse 16, and the uneducated, ordinary people are filled with the Holy Spirit and rejoicing in God's miracles. Looking at verses 24 through 31, we see that Jew and Gentile had been against Jesus, and we know that Jew and Gentile will be for Jesus's movement. The Reverend Dr. Willie Jennings writes in his commentary on Acts about this question. And it's really poetically. He says, what will you do if I join you at the body of Jesus and fall in love with your God and with you? The Gentiles of Acts are on their way to communion with Jews while remaining Gentiles. This is the most terrifying aspect of interruption. Love. The great illusion of followers of Jesus, especially those who imagine themselves leaders, is that they could live a different path than Jesus and his disciples. They somehow believe they can be loved, liked, or tolerated, or maybe even ignored by those with real power in the world. But life in the spirit means that disciples rarely, if ever, go where they want to go or to whom they would go. Indeed, the spirit seems to be always pressing the disciples to go to whom they would in fact strongly prefer never to share space or a meal and definitely not life together. And we'll see all of those questions and um, wonders unfold in the rest of the book of Acts. In verse 24, we read this really beautiful prayer for boldness. I think it's important that this boldness comes from God. It doesn't depend on character choice or scholarship or moral formation. But the theme of this whole book, openness to the Spirit's movement. All right, so next time on Bible study, death, Satan, and money. Looking ahead, I read a great article in the New York Times today called Good Enough Holidays about how to observe Easter and Passover and physical distancing. And it had this really zippy lead. Easter and Passover celebrate not only renewal and rebirth, but also a certain scrappiness and resilience, a certain indomitability of spirit, hope and life, triumph over death and fear. And then it has this real zinger from the author's son, a college student who is now attending Zoom University. He says this, 40 minutes is the max for a free Zoom session, so let that limit cue you about what's too long for a Zoom experience. So thank you for your patience as we're figuring out a way to be a digital expression of the local parish. We'll meet on Zoom at 2.30 on Wednesday to discuss chapters 3 and 4 in Acts. We'll follow with small group at 3.00. 
and have our pastoral care and peer support group call at 11 on Thursday the 16th. This week is Holy Week. We are uh, filming services for Maundy Thursday and Easter, and we have filmed Palm Sunday, and you can find it all on our YouTube channel, Holy Trinity Auburn. And we've had a number of college students help to make all of this happen. Taylor McElmore has filmed and edited, and Claudia Affen and Lila Meadows are singing. It's gonna be different, it's gonna be beautiful, and this is a way for us all to do it together. I'm continuing in prayer for you, and I hope to see you soon.